Hi, welcome back to Who We Are. My name is Aiden Bassett, and I am the Summer 2020 Opinion Editor. And, um, hey, Kat. Hi, Aiden, and I'm Kat Chuck, and I'm the Summer 2020 Deputy Opinion Editor. And thank you for joining us for this episode of Who We Are. Who We Are is an identity-focused pseudo-news podcast about queer issues. Sometimes we discuss opinions on the news, sometimes we just discuss opinions. And today we're going to be talking about allyship in uh, all its various forms. Um, obviously, the Black Lives Matter movement has been sweeping the nation since the death of George Floyd in late May. And I think for a lot of queer people and even for a lot of straight people, frankly, for all Americans, I think there has been increasing discussion, increasing reflection on what it means to be a good ally. And obviously, um, Kat and I are both seeking to be good allies to the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, but we also have primarily our own frame of reference for queer issues and how people can be um, allies to the queer community and also how queer people ourselves, how we um, can and should be allies to other groups, um, other marginalized communities. So today we're going to talk about things like the, the privilege of the queer community, which is in flux. Some groups are having increasing rights, increasing visibility. Um, some groups are still really fighting on that front. We're also going to talk about the duty, I think, I think we both agree, uh, queer people have to support um, other marginalized communities, especially since the queer community is, like many communities, so intersectional. So we, we have profound overlap with those other marginalized groups, and we kind of owe them our solidarity, our, our allyship. We're going to talk more in depth about just our own experiences of intersectionality. And then we're also going to talk about how straight and cis people can be good allies, what behaviors straight and cis people demonstrate that can be sometimes unwittingly problematic, um, and how we would want non-queer people to be allies in our own lives. So um, Kat, just to kick it off, what would you say is maybe the, the most noticeable change in queer legal rights or our like formal status or our involvement in the political system that, that you can think of in the past few years, because there have been so, so many. Well, um, I'm going to po point to 20, the 2015 Supreme Court case, Oprah Jafel v. Hodges, yeah. yay for gay marriage. Um, and I think since then there have been several other landmark um, like queer Supreme Court cases. Um, for example, the most recent one, I think this June, Bostock County, oh, Bostock versus Clayton County. Yeah. that yeah reasserted like queer workers rights um so i think that it's awesome like the supreme court is doing a lot um extending constitutionality to cover the rights of queer folks yay um in terms of like the uh, presidential administration things are all like you know yeah yeah <laughs> like <clears throat> vastly different you know but yeah. i think that um i have hope for this election season and hopefully we can see the um, legislative and executive branches pushing for uh, forward some more queer legislation yeah i i definitely agree i also think um you know as we're as we're talking about progress i think something you and i were discussing when we were planning this episode was the importance of acknowledging for the queer community itself to acknowledge but even uh, maybe more so for non-queer people to acknowledge um, just how much 
the queer community isn't a monolith in its rights and protections. So like, you know, you're, you're exactly right. In 2015, um, I think lots of, you know, same-sex couples were rejoicing at the, the magnitude of this shift. And I think really the whole queer community celebrated that. I mean, there's just more legal proof that we deserve the same rights as everyone else. Um, but I also think, you know, you've, you've pointed out a, a, an unfortunate trend in the last few years, maybe kind of two steps forward, one step back in that, you know, North Carolina only repealed its um, anti-trans bathroom bill in 2017. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, under, under the Trump administration, there have been efforts, I don't know how successful, um, pushed back against from the military and from military leaders, but the administration attempted to ban uh, transgender service members from serving in branches of the military. Um, and so there definitely have been, especially for, for trans people, um, especially for trans people of color, there have been uh, enormous new barriers increasingly erected, you know, as if it wasn't already hard enough to be trans, they had to be forced out of their, you know, military service or, um, you know, it, there, there's been a wave of backlash laws in some ways that have made previous progress also seem, seem more fragile, too. Yeah, I agree with that. There's also two layers to all these issues as well. There's like that just because like you have a law protecting a group of people doesn't mean that the cultural or like societal mm. view of that group of people has changed. Yeah. Um, yeah, legislation like is in so important in so many different ways, but it takes it unfortunately takes such long lengths of time for real cultural societal progress to be made. Yeah, and I and I really feel like there, you know, not to diminish the value of marriage equality, but you know, the benefits of spousal rights and of visitation rights, you know, for your spouse in the hospital and things like that. Like there are lots of meaningful gains about marriage equality, but I would also say, in many ways, it's um, there are aspects of it that are a cosmetic gain where it just seems better, but it maybe isn't a wholesale transformation in the experience of queer Americans because. You know, again, another Supreme Court case upheld um, workplace rights for queer individuals not to be, um, you know, fired by their employer with without cause or things like that, or because of their employer's religious convictions, things like that. Um, but I, I think all sorts of workplace rights are still, I mean, maybe that's the next new frontier for queer activism is to say, you shouldn't be able to be fired or discriminated against in your job for being queer um, and things like that. And I think that brings us to maybe another point, um, given that we've talked about how many different communities are experiencing different levels of threat and different levels of privilege, um, that you and I also both agree that the queer community really has an obligation to help um, all other, you know, social justice movements. Like, you know, not every queer person is a person of color and certainly not every black person is queer, but mm-hmm. that there's, there's enough overlap between the com- queer community and every other marginalized group that, um, especially with the Black Lives Matter movement of late, but also of all sorts of movements, um, you know, to protect undocumented immigrants, things like that, that, that queer people have um, the history to know what it is like to be, you know, oppressed and discriminated against. And we need to use that empathy um, as a kind of, you know, as a, as a spur to our own action on behalf of other marginalized groups. Um, I'm curious, 
ways ways in which you encounter that or ways in which uh, you think the queer community is doing a good job or maybe doing a, a not so good job of being a queer ally? Mm. I mean, I think that to talk about like to generalize and say like the community at large, you know, like yeah. that's not going to be very effective. But I think that in general, I feel like queer people should be sensitive to these issues because mm -hmm. we have this shared history, like entrenched within like the LGBTQ rights movement are like, you know, black activists, black activists, like all types of like BIPOC activists, like mm -hmm. trans activists, like, come on, like you can't talk about um, the queer kind of like rights movement without talking about like Marsha P. Johnson or Sylvia Riviera, like these people of all different identities are also important in yeah. the female community and outside. Yeah, and I think, you know, as any student of history could tell you, once upon a time when, you know, um, black groups like the NAACP um, and, you know, women's rights groups and feminists were both campaigning for, you know, women to get the franchise and for, you yeah. know, equal protection for um, people of color. There were certainly activists and leaders who said, yes, we need to bond together. We need to work together in solidarity. And there were also people who said, no, I, you know, I, my group is, is not going to get our rights as quickly if we're associated with you, other marginalized group whom maybe we don't think deserves rights because groups can certainly be bigoted against each other, but also maybe because we'll be stigmatized by association. Like, you know, if, if people thought, you know, back in the, you know, early 20th century, you know, if they thought that the, you know, women's suffrage movement was a slippery slope to full enfranchisement of black Americans. You know, if you were both racist and sexist, you probably That's thought one awesome. was worse because you opposed the other. So I think there has been a history of division. I think, you know, kind of the, the role of the oppressor, right, for the white patriarchy here is mm -hmm. to be, you know, divide and conquering of, of groups that it seeks to oppress um, or that is convenient to oppress. But I think, I think that just gives me more and more of a sense these days, the more I learn about that, um, that it's really important to have that kind of uh, intergroup solidarity too. And I'm curious what what examples you see at the moment. Um, were there more opportunities for that? More opportunities for intersectional activism. Yeah, intersectional cooperation. I like that. Amazing. Um, well, I mean. People themselves are intrinsically intersectional. Like, right. I identify as a woman and also an, a, a multiracial person and also a bisexual. So I feel like when you become involved, like politically involved, I would say, mm -hmm. like most importantly, like, man, I went to my first women's march and I was like, damn, I'm hooked. Like, yeah. I, I, like this, this activism stuff, like, it's really great. I love it. And it's important and it's important on so many different levels. And so it's like, I'm not just going to go to like, you know, the women's march. I'm also going to go to BLM protests and I'm also going to go to pride. Like it's this layered activism, I think that, yeah. you know, it almost like reaffirms me in my identity mm -hmm. on many different levels. What about, what about you? 
Uh, you know, it's a good question. I think, you know, I I have been encountering Black Lives Matter protests where I live right now, and um, just a couple hours north in Portland, obviously, there's been a, a lot of coverage increasingly of mm-hmm. um, of federal agents coming into Portland, and a lot of people have commented on the disparity of the fact that Portland, by some metrics, is America's whitest major city, mm-hmm. um, but that it also has these ongoing Black Lives Matter protests such that um, these kind of secret police-esque federal forces that I don't know very much about but are being remarkably uh, violent and instigatory are you know, cracking down on the city in an effort to suppress it. And I think in some ways I'm, I'm proud, most of my family lives in Portland, I'm proud that the city is doing such a good job of you know, acting in racial solidarity, um, despite the fact that most Portlanders are white, that they're, that they're showing up for the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, but I also think, you know, I've heard, I've heard some critics say that it's very easy for that kind of activism, that kind of just showing up at a protest, which is, you know, great being physically present, but it can also spill into co-optation. And I, I think um, one of the risks of intersectional allyship, I think sometimes uh, is that it's really easy to criticize someone who is just showing up for your identity group and doesn't also belong to your identity group mm-hmm. as, as doing it for some kind of extra credit, you know, the idea, right. And, and that it can be very performative. And I think, I think I don't know, I don't so much believe that it is predominantly the case, primarily the case that people's activism is performative. But I do think that, you know, every time you're going to encourage someone to be part of another group, uh, that their struggle for liberation, for rights, um, that you should encourage people also to be careful, to be thoughtful and reflective about how they're doing this. And I think, um, I mean, that in some ways that kind of takes us into our, our next topic, which is about our own frame of reference for intersectionality. I know you talked about um, being multiracial and being woman and being bisexual. Um, for me, I, I think that there are definitely times when I am a little self-conscious because I feel like, you know, most of the most of the great critiques from Black activists or Black scholars or academics at the moment for for the Black Lives Matter movement, at least, um, are that one of the great privileges of whiteness is that you don't really think about race. And I definitely do feel like, you know, despite the fact that you know Michael Brown was killed by Darren Wilson six years ago and the Black Lives Matter movement has been around for about seven years at this point um, in its current incarnation. I, I feel like I am only now, and in some ways I feel like many people in the country, but I'm only now coming to appreciate um, just how little frame of reference I have for topics about, for discussions of race. And, and so I'm, I'm really feeling a sense that intersectionality helps in some ways, um, but in others, it kind of shows you that your empathy is only partial, and so I'm. Your understanding is only partial, and so I'm. I'm increasingly conscious of the the shortcomings of my own perspective. And well, I, yeah, like I think that's like the best way to be an ally, like to be aware of where you are in your learning process. Because mm-hmm. I mean, we're all continually learning, whether that's about you know like our nation's kind of tragic history sometimes or about um, like identities and 
people that we don't like usually get to interact with like i think that's like what you just mentioned i think that's like the core of what it means to be a good ally like i'm it's i mean like we all feel kind of like guilty or bad when we acknowledge that we're ignorant about something but mm-hmm. no but acknowledging and facing that ignorance and saying that i want to work and build towards something better like that is at its core i think what it means to be an ally like i stand here as someone who may not entirely understand entirely understand what your experience is but i'm here for you bro and like i mean i just want to like support you yeah and, um i want to learn mm-hmm. things about you and your community and community's history yeah, I, I I agree that as much as, you know, ignorance is in some ways another way of saying that you've indulged in having a kind of privilege or you haven't had to think about something. Um, I also agree that most of the time, the far more important thing is to be firm in a commitment to like have each other's backs at everyone who's, you know, got some kind of privilege or some kind of faces some kind of adversity in, in one way or another. I think the the more important thing, at least to me, um, is definitely the solidarity aspect. Um, I'm curious, Kat, to just how you personally, um, maybe less intersectionally, but at least um, as you've encountered the way people talk or think about the queer community, um, just ways in which you think straight or cis people sometimes aren't good allies and ways in which you think um, just people you've encountered could could do better or could do differently. Yeah, um, that's interesting. So I come from um, like a rather, like your standard suburban community mm. and where you like queer people don't really have a lot of visibility. Like we're near like San Francisco, like we're within the vicinity of like, you know, this hub of queer culture, but yeah. it's really quite different when you're detached from it. And I mean, okay, like to illustrate from within my own family, I am one of seven like sibling step siblings and I'm the I'm, you know, the rainbow sheep of the family. And <laughs> it's really interesting to me because well most of my siblings are older than I am and so, you know, they are they have they're adults. Yeah. adults like they have lived for many years and have operated in society for many years and have met different kinds of people and yet they still freeze up when they want to talk to me about who mm. i'm dating or who i'm seeing mm. they almost don't want to bring it up or when they do they're like it's okay any new boys in your life and then there's like a pause and then like oh or girls oh or, yeah you know anyone and it's like it's like kind of awkward but i can tell yeah. that they're trying and i feel yeah. like that's kind of that's the most important thing to me the fact that you know they're making a conscious effort to like be open and ask me questions about like my identity mm-hmm. and who i'm you know who i'm dating even uh-huh. if they mess up a little bit when asking you know but at least they're asking yeah i think um <clears throat> One of one of the pieces of advice I was given by a friend of mine in high school, um, he himself, his family was Pakistani, um, and he was, you know, a, a practicing Muslim. And he said to me that one of the one of the like general behaviors that he found most frustrating from people or or found um got kind of got them, you know, with their foot most most firmly in their mouth was when they tried to presume they knew more than they did. 
Um, and I think that, you know, the question even that you, you mentioned some of your family members may be asking at times there of like any new boys in your life presumes that the answer to whom you would be dating yeah. is, is that they're boys. And I think um, in much the same way for this friend of mine, you know, he, he was always like, people are always like, so like you pray five times a day, right? Mm-hmm. When they could ask the question, so what is prayer like for you? Yeah. You know, and, and again, you probably have to get to an organic point in the discussion where that's a normal question to ask. You probably don't want to be turning around in your seat in fifth period and being like, so, so, you know, what's prayer like for you out of the blue? Because even that can be a, can be a pointed question when, when asked in the wrong context. But I found his point really instructive because I feel like it has informed a lot of the ways that I realize I prefer people to, to infer about me too. Cause like I went to prom with a girl, um, my, my junior year who said, well, no one's going to bother. No one's going to be bothered by the fact that you're going with me because they know you're gay. And I was like, well, I'm in fact not. I didn't, I didn't say it quite like that, but it was another one of those instances of presumption. And I think presumption, especially for people who are otherwise doing a pretty good job or who are clearly, you know, on your team trying to help presumption is one of the most frequent traits I encounter from people that lead them into being Maybe, maybe not, you know, rude. Maybe it doesn't even quite border on a microaggression, but it gets in that territory of, well, that made some people uncomfortable and you didn't have to say it like that. Is, is yeah. the I don't know. I, I know exactly what you mean, uh, but I don't know. This is awful, but sometimes I even feel guilty for like mm. asking people to like, you know, change the way that they ask. Yeah, it can be uncomfortable. Yeah, I'm just like, I, I want to assert who I am. And I am, in fact, proud of who I am. But it's, it's so awkward to, like, directly, oh, my gosh, I'm, I so I so much avoid confrontation. It's awful. But like, it, it's necessary. It is necessary, especially when somebody is trying and trying to be a good ally. Yeah, like, you can't be afraid to correct them. Like, you know, to yeah, yeah. I, you know, uh, in something I may have brought up before and might inevitably bring up again, one of the ideas that that a lot of black activists will mention is that it is not the job of white or of black people. It shouldn't be the burden of black people to educate white people, oh. to educate everyone else about racism. And I, in some ways, you know, I've I fully I fully believe that I fully agree. And I also feel like in my own experience. If, for example, I have a friend who uses they, them pronouns mm-hmm. and another friend of mine or an acquaintance of ours or even a classmate, just anyone misgenders them, uses the he or the she series and that person doesn't doesn't use those series. It's it feels sometimes like in that same way of like, I wish it didn't have to be my job to correct my acquaintances. And again, as you say, confrontation can be a little unpleasant sometimes. I wish I didn't have to say to them, actually, you're misgendering them. Um, and you know, I don't have to put it like that. I can say, actually, I think they use the they series. You know, there are, yeah. there are ways to do it gently, but it, it is, you know, to your point, uncomfortable to have to be the person who's correcting other people because it creates a little bit of distance. It's like, I want you to feel comfortable being vulnerable and making some mistakes around me, but it also can put me in the position of having to tell you, you have done something differently than how someone wants it, or you've said something in a way that doesn't come across as terribly respectful mm-hmm. and so i think it is you know personally like is it is it the end of world is it the end of the world for 
me as a white cispathing guy to say to people, actually, you're using the wrong pronouns for my friend, please stop. No, it's not so hard. Like, obviously, there are different levels of ease and challenge here. But I definitely think that it is unfortunate to have to be in that position you describe of being the one who has to do the correcting, has to do the contextualizing, for sure. Yeah. It's especially hard, I feel, just because, like, it's outside of mainstream conversation, obviously, because the mainstream in the U.S. is, is straight. But I think that there's really distinct things that people can do to start bringing those topics and those discussions into the like as integrating them as part of the norm mm-hmm. like um like for example like i've been seeing online on instagram or twitter recently like normalize putting your pronouns in your bio even if you are yeah. cis and straight like and um i've never had this happen before before i came to berkeley but having professors or in discussion sections people are like introduce yourself name age or year mm-hmm. pronouns like that's that stuff is amazing to me yeah. Um, and I feel like it's also harder to be an ally when you don't have the context. Like, I mean, like marginalized yeah. communities should not have to educate other like privileged communities about their history. But who else is going to do it? Yeah, that's... You have to seek out that yeah. information yourself. Like, I have never had any formal education of like queer history or mm-hmm. even like an extensive like. Asian history or Latinx history or Black history even in the United States, like one that is detailed and respectful and mm-hmm. comes from the voices or perspectives of those communities. Yeah. It's it's kind of I don't even mean to say it's kind of, it's it's devastating that yeah. we that we don't do that. I think, mm-hmm. you know, at Berkeley, for example, um, lots of people have been advocating for more than an American cultures requirement, where in an AC class, you have to have material to, to become an AC class. You have to have material that reflects experiences, perspectives, stories, what have you, of America's, I think, five principal racial groups yeah. is, is the system. Uh, indigenous peoples, Black peoples, Latinx, Asian Americans, and, and, and white um, Caucasian Americans. And I think... I think that's a good system, but people are also advocating that there be these more specific history requirements. And personally, I I don't know how I feel about there being a mandatory, everyone has to take a queer studies course that introduces them to that. I mean, on one hand, like, I don't know that I think it would hurt. I frankly think it would be a really good thing. But I also feel like, you know, just knowing how like small and in some ways intimate the um, gender women's studies department is i feel like if suddenly every single undergraduate had to take a semester course you might get a lot of people in there who make that department which i have heard from people is a real home for them Mm -hmm. kind of like for public fodder like everyone irrespective of how seriously they want to engage with queer history have to learn that and i think in some ways of course you especially want the people who don't want to seriously engage with it in front of that material mm-hmm. to see if it can change their minds. But I, I do agree with you that in any case, you know, all through public education, we should have much stronger histories because I think history is the beginning of empathy and then empathy is the beginning of good allyship, right? Like yes. even if you're putting the wrong words into the phrase, you can still be putting the right tone, the right sense of intent, the right 
desire to to be constructive, to be inclusive. So yeah, um, I guess we'll close by, I'll ask, what would you want people to do? Like what kinds of things would you want them to ask or say or talk about or ways they want you want people to talk about you to be good allies and to be, you know, really pro queer in your life, for lack of a better phrase. Mm, interesting. I honestly not entirely sure. I I mean, okay, like I've grown up in one of the most liberal areas in the entire country. Mm-hmm. And yet, you know, I still feel uncomfortable about this kind of stuff on a daily basis, which is like that's kind of awful if you think about the theater country like as a whole like yeah. how queer people yeah um but to what i would love in an ally is just someone that wants to hear what i have to say and wants to know about that part of my life i mean most of my friends in high school were straight and mm-hmm. we never talked about my sexuality they huh. were never they were never curious I don't think they ever really cared because me coming out to them didn't really change who I was to them. Like I was still the same person as I was before, but that person was straight cat, not queer cat. And Mm. they never tried to get to know queer cat, which is why I kind of like have trouble with reconnecting with high school, my high school friends, because they're, they're just not curious if that's Mm. even the right word. Yeah. Yeah. Like they're, they're definitely not like, unsupportive like they will occasionally throw in this so what kind of hotties are you you know seeing around berkeley (laughs) sure exactly but like it's that's so surface level to me yeah yeah no i think it's um it's, it's an interesting point because there are certainly people who have this i don't know they think inclusive energy they think oh I'm just going to treat you know differently. Everything is going to be completely fine. And I think it's, you know, in some ways all well and good to have a very neutral reaction to a friend coming out or something like that. But I also feel like, you know, there's, there's a kind of erasure without stigma yeah. there. There's a kind of like, there's not an intent to be bigoted. There's just um, maybe an unspoken discomfort on their part. Yeah. And so the, the way they've approached it is to it to pretend like it's not there. And as long as you don't bring it up, they don't have to bring it up. And they can keep interacting with, as you said, yeah. straight cat exactly. you know, without acknowledging queer cat. Um, not that a straight cat exists per se, except in their head. But but yeah, I you know that's it's really interesting because I think I think there are so many contexts in life that like I experience people really kind of put a discussion of queer issues to the side, like in a professional context. Mm-hmm. I I have worked multiple jobs where I think the idea of me sharing my pronouns and or requesting other people's would just be like really weird, like a cultural disruption. And, you know, in some ways, a professional context is maybe among the more important places to be getting that right. But it's also maybe one of the hardest places to feel like you're in a position to dictate cultural terms in your in your workplace. And especially if you feel out of place because of it. Yeah, I think um I think you're you're also onto something there about just the level of sincere curiosity and of like open-minded, maybe even generous curiosity, a curiosity that is like not can you give me answers to these six questions? Like, yeah. 
you know, <laughs> like interrogating people about their anatomy, like, oh, do you still have parts down there? Is is not the same thing as sincere curiosity. That's closer to interrogation, and it's and it's definitely invasive. But I think your point of just like open interest, you know, yeah. I, I think there's a terrible stereotype about bisexuals and even gays too that that we just all are desperately dying to be the center of attention. <laughs> and I mean, I may exhibit that trait, but I don't think that's true of bisexuals generally. But I do think that. There is, I mean, there's both the opportunity for education. If if you get to tell your story, get to share your experiences. And there's also probably the best framing therein of if if someone comes to you and says, so what's your romantic life like? Or what's, what is your experience of dating been at Berkeley? Or, you know, you fill in the place wherever you have your, your shared history. I think those kinds of super open-ended questions that let someone say, you know, mm, the dating seems like this, or I feel yeah. this way about boys or about girls or about, you know, the non-binary folks that I'm in relationships with. I think you give someone a lot more flexibility to talk about themselves, to educate you in the process by just sharing their their sincere, legitimate feelings. And and by keeping it open, you 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 prevent yourself, I think, as an ally from asking the kinds of questions that narrow the the frame of their experience and force them into something you expect and instead allow them to express things you could never have imagined basically yeah that's wow that was so well put openness and just curiosity about like who queer people or you know fill in whatever identity are like and like who we are as people and how like our individuals contribute to who we are and because i don't know it's very what the point you brought up about like pointed questions when you're wondering about yeah. like just one specific aspect of who a person is and when all you do is fixate on that one aspect that's when you know it becomes uncomfortable yeah because people are more than just like a single identity we are the intersection of many of many identities of, <laughs> of, of many yes. <laughs> yeah i i completely agree and um Fortunately, that's actually a beautiful jumping off point for our episode next time, because our episode next time is going to be about labels, um, how we put words to identities, how we express them both within the community and outside of it, all that nomenclature, all that vocabulary. And it's definitely complicated. There's a reason our acronym has a minimum of five letters. <laughs> so that's what we'll talk about next time. Uh, thank you so much, Kat. Thank you. Andy.